Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter 21. jerked the stick to the left to avoid a large rock in the field, and G laughed out loud, slick coolness forgotten. I could hear Sindra, Benlay, and Maley outside doing the same. The boy at my side grabbed my hand to steady my control over the car, and we straightened out after a moment, skidding in mud and slush. The windows on both sides were open, and I could hear some soldiers a little further off laughing too. I only needed a red nose and wig to be the perfect clown. When I slowed down with the accelerator stick, we sunk in the muck, wheels spinning out, and soon we weren't moving at all. Stop, Spacer, Sindra commanded, as she and her friends ran over. They were all grinning like happy little kids at a puppet show, and they started rocking the car back and forth. Even G half-stepped out and leaned into the doorframe on his side, shoving for all he was worth, laughing the whole time. I spun the wheel slowly, and in a moment, we were off again. It was barely an hour since my grave conversation with the commissioner. Sindra's anger at me was already forgotten. In fact, hearing her mirth now was an honest pleasure. Through the kids' translation efforts, G had agreed to show me how to pilot the car we'd appropriated the night before. Sunshine had finally broken in the east, a sharp silvery blaze, so that the car now threw out a long, crazy shadow as I careened around the open field behind the Vernay's mansion. In the back seat were all my possessions, including the medical bag from the butler, those sandwiches from the chef, and my flight bag from the army guys. The panther and its ammunition were intact, except for those few rounds the soldiers had fired off as a test. To one side, even more uniform types now watched our antics with equal enjoyment, until an officer shouted at them to quit slacking. In time, I giggled too, because I was so hopeless at this. I'd never driven anything like a car before except in an amusement park once on Balico 4. I had bounced off everything possible that day and laughed myself silly. Driving was dizzying and fun. Most vehicles like this were self-directed, and those that weren't required only minimal input from the driver, or so I'd always seen in vids. This primitive thing needed unqualified attention at all times, or it just flew out of control. It was insane! How could anyone possibly travel under their own control with so much stuff to bump into? I finally got to a point where I could start and stop when I more or less wanted to, and I could keep it in a wiggly version of a straight line. You having it? The boy riding shotgun cried, using maybe all his English, just before I turned too fast. The car lifted up on its side wheels and we both yelped when it slammed down again. 
More gentle, Maylee yelled from outside, but threw a high laugh. Got it, I called with a wave, then eased back into some speed. I was just after basic competency because I only wanted to get back to finery. Even the edge of town would do. I wouldn't need to weave through traffic, just keep myself steady on some quiet country roads. So I held the sticks, turned left, turned right, stopped, and then started off again. After half an hour more of this silliness, G declared out the window to his friends that I was now good enough to avoid kissing any trees, and Syndra translated it back through the window for me. With this blessing and a map route in my eye view, I was feeling ludicrously confident. I did a few more circles in the mud, but finally stopped with a rocking jolt. I bumbled a thank you to the elegant boy for his time and effort, and he laughed all the more. It seemed proper to go in and say a final goodbye to Syndra's dad, so I had the other kids climb in, and I bounced us across the field towards the house. It was then that I noticed the soldiers who'd been laughing at me before were now dashing about, weapons in hand, and taking up alert positions. One of them flagged us down and launched into a hasty explanation in low speak. Her words were meaningless, but the movement of big armored trucks was clear enough. One of these drove right past us and stopped and backed up to the kitchen door I'd seen earlier at breakfast. Several soldiers ran over and opened up the rear of the truck, then lowered some folding stairs. It was a personnel transport, and there were long benches inside. Syndra questioned the officer for several seconds, while this woman in turn pointed off toward an area beyond the trees, where I knew the main highway was located. Uniformed men and women ran inside the house, then came right out again, followed by various people, half-dressed in hastily donned cold gear and carrying bags. They were the servants, and they were evacuating. The officer got a call on her comm and motioned for us to follow. I guided the car slowly as she stalked around the corner. At the front of the house, Commissioner Vernay stood on the wide sidewalk, still in the same light house jacket, heedless of the morning chill. He was alternately speaking with several soldiers, reassuring a few civilian types, Benlay's dad was one, and delivering some blistering orders over an earbud comm device. I stopped the car, and we all got out. Upon seeing his daughter, the older man waved her to his side without missing a word of his tirade. G and Maylee held hands quietly while Benlay sidled up to his own dad. I stood off to the side in the mud. There was an intermittent rumble in the distance that I noticed about then. It reminded me of a misaligned mag bottle slamming around loose emitters inside a reactor housing. Boom! 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 It's what might happen, they always said, in my primary engineering courses, if you were careless. Someone was being careless in a big way now, and they couldn't have been more than a few kilometers off. Is this it? I asked Syndra, who seemed to have noticed the noises when I did. They say the rebels are coming. We are all leaving. I need a road back to town, I told her. Spacer, you cannot. They will kill you. No, they won't. I'm not one of you guys. They will not care. You must stay with us. 
Commissioner Vernays had closed his connection and was following our exchange. He has business, Beben. You must let him go his way. This is insane, the girl replied, perplexment and anger written on her face, in her voice. Fear, too. Fine, leave. Go get dead and see how you feel then. Her father held up a restraining hand to me as he spoke with the officer I had followed to the front. The Western Highway is still open, he announced. Join us until the first turn off south. From there, you can follow the signs back into the city. I nodded my thanks, then turned to run off to the battered little car. Space Air, wait! Sindra, Benley, Maley, and G ran to catch up, but they had nothing to say when they did. It's okay, I supplied. There's a plan. We'll all see each other again. Impulsively, simultaneously, all four stepped in and gave me a hug, like a sports huddle. Calls from their elders drew them away just as suddenly, and they dashed off. I jumped back into the little car just as they closed the rear gate hatch on the troop vehicle. It was loaded to the gills with domestic workers and various household hangers-on. A wide rear window in the gate was open, and the moon-like face of Stev, the excitable attendant, appeared. He sadly studied the house he had so proudly served. I called to him, and he looked over. Takir? He gave me a sad shrug and waved vaguely out at the world. Of course. The butler wouldn't be with them, nor had he been at his master's side nor would he, in fact, be anywhere on the grounds. If I wanted to find that precise and capable penguin man now, with his perfect mask and hidden reservoir of darkness, I would need to move towards the approaching revolution, not away from it. But the truck was pulling out, so I made to follow, car wheels slipping and bouncing through mud and deep puddles. Overcompensating for every turn, I gripped the car's control sticks with a rising anxiety that was not far off from panic. About 20 minutes down the road, I took the first southern exit I came to. The convoy continued on, escorted by soldiers and a few armored vehicles sporting big guns. It was soon out of sight. The map in my eye view indicated I could follow a circuitous route back to town that would take hours. I had to pull off the road once to let another desperate caravan go by, filled with what looked like regular workaday people in buses and private vans. One overfull truck stopped and a couple of tough-looking characters jumped out to try and commandeer my car. They had seemed threatening from the moment they rolled up, so I'd had the time to fish out the panther and snap it together. As they stalked over, all round-shouldered and menacing, I stepped out of the car and pointed the rifle. It certainly wasn't what they expected, and they stood there for a few seconds, confused, balked, and irritated. I fired one anti-purse round into the air, over their heads, and they moved at last, dashing back to their truck and their people. Faces, both young and old, stared at me from the vehicle with frightened eyes, with angry eyes. 
but a few also leveled caustic words for their own men who had idiotically invited tragedy from a complete stranger on the road. I got back in, pulled around them, and drove off. Riding south on that stretch of highway for almost 80 kilometers, I encountered no one else. I did have one other thrilling moment, though, when the car weaved back and forth crazily, wheels screeching, after I tried to avoid an icy puddle in a low part of the road. Thereafter, I just barreled through anything in the way. Shaky stick control aside, I nonetheless had plenty of quiet time in which to think. Hark Vernays had clear motivation to help me. Griselda's passengers and their mission, on the other hand, were still unknowns. The president? No, not expressly. If spiriting away the soon-to-be-ousted leader of this place had ever been a prime motivation, then the man would have already been gone. They'd have kept his hidden yacht, along with a crew, assuming any of it was real, in constant readiness. A separate, off-world extraction team would have only been a complication, which could only mean that Small had come to get Billings, not to rescue him. He came to retrieve the guy, like baggage or property. It was irksome. Even after deep assessment and access to restricted information, I was still no closer to understanding the handsome Mr. Small. But I had the address of his last known location, and I had access to Griselda. Or at least I could tell him that I did. This brought up a wave of related emotion, so I shook it off, focused on the empty road, and drove. In time, I took a lonesome exit onto a narrow country lane. Both my map program and the crummy onboard nav agreed it would lead directly to what passed for a major artery on Barlow. I was able to avoid wrong turns onto unmarked tracks at the only two opportunities I could have had to get lost, and eventually found myself approaching the same highway I'd followed from the travel port from along one side of that facility. I slowed to look. It was just a dark mess now, like a burned-up pile of blocks and sticks, yet wet from all the rain and sleet overnight. The shuttle was a giant charred heap on the icy tarmac, a slick of oil around it like the blood of a slain beast. I thought there'd be no one hanging around here, but people poked through the great soggy mess with poles and bags laden with scavenged treasures. There were some dead bodies here and there, and the living pawed them as well. Finery hovered in the distance just like before, so I drove on. In 20 minutes, I passed the familiar showpiece factory where the robot had declared that rape and murder were now the order of the day. I didn't stop, but rather followed the overhead tram line into the city. I weaved with exaggerated energy to avoid piles of trash and people who were themselves weaving in and out of the road. I finally pulled up to a curb when a whole crowd of them, laughing and drinking, blocked the way. They seemed to be dressed in just the barest shreds of clothing, 
like knotted ropes and the rotted remnants of sackcloth, yet piles of the things all layered atop each other in some horrid imitation of cold gear. And they were shockingly dirty, reminding me of myself from only the day before. I was getting looks. Though the car was far from luxurious, it was more than these people had, and this was a crowd hypersensitive to class issues. There was also a lot more junk in the road, broken crates, rugs, wet bags and furniture, and at least one of those factory safety drones, now dead and silent in the gutter. Trying to drive around this stuff, when I'd only learned to drive at all a few hours before, seemed like a bad idea. I got out with my bags, rifle disassembled and stowed away as before. The cold gear I'd obtained through Takir's precision was stylish and clean, despite my request for simplicity. So I actually stomped and splashed around in the first mud puddle I found. I smeared some of the cold stuff on my face, too. I got laughs and hoots from the crowd, but they seemed to forget me just as fast. Hoping I looked poor enough to pass muster now, I started off. There was another car up the block, and I stepped warily around it. The thing was all smashed up, but had obviously been expensive once. In fact, probably only hours before. It looked like a hundred hammers had been taken to it, with even the armor glass of the windows now chipped and webbed to the point of milky opacity. Bringing up the map again, I put in my exact destination with some hand gestures. That unassuming office building with the nondescript parking lot and all the new security cameras showed in blinking red. According to annotations on the map, it was near an area that held offices and packaging plants for shelf-stable food products sold to off-world brokers. A ritzy business district by local standards, it looked to be an hour or more away by foot, so I set off at a rapid pace. More people were on the streets now. Some were looting, and some were just standing around in boisterous groups. I came across bodies, too, just lying in the road, and stepped around them with elaborate care. A few blocks on, I saw my first fire of the day, a smashed air car. It might have been a police vehicle, but it was hard to tell now. It had plowed into an exposed girder frame on an overhead conduit bridge. People were standing around the thing, warming their hands like it was a bonfire at a jamboree. Early morning yet, but the grano was flowing freely. I watched a woman take a long pull off a bottle, then hand it to a small child standing at her side, who snatched at it greedily. The next block up, further along the line of the overhead bridge, I saw at least a dozen human figures hanging from it, like meat in a cooler. Not all of them were clothed, nor were they all adults. How these people had been herded out to the middle of the bridge, which wasn't made for human traffic, and then strung up like this was a grotesque mystery. I was drawn to ponder it, but got bumped continually by people milling about like they were between appointments, so I just moved on. There were more dead bodies along the way, and more drunken revelry. There were also groups of raggedy, angry-looking people marching about importantly. I met no one's gaze and clomped around trash and debris with care. Black smoke billowed from around a corner further up, signaling a big fire. 
passing this intersection, I spied an isolated building some ways off to the right that was gutted and smoldering heavily. Surrounded by fencing that had held back nobody, the numerous do-not-enter signs dotting it provided grim humor. Once past this, I thought I heard gunshots. They were far off yet, but in the direction I was headed. I stepped to the side then as a military convoy rolled down the street, but as it approached, it proved to be driven by civilians. They honked horns and waved, thrilled with their parade, and the people watching laughed and waved back. Six armored transports went by, with one medium gun car bringing up the rear, driven by an elderly, toothless man who laughed and drank, and spun the top-mounted turret around and around and around. From somewhere a few blocks over, there came a loud sizzle-bang, sounding like an extra-big firework. It was followed immediately by the crackle of small-arms fire. There were suddenly terrified people running back and forth. One large buxom woman hobbled by with a small man, stained red, draped over her shoulder. In the lobby of a nearby building, the armor-glass doors of which had been bashed out, I reassembled my rifle. Inserting the clip of ape rounds, as well as one of the anti-purse, I re-slung the bags and adjusted them. Then I stepped out into the street, the panther reassuringly in hand. Somehow it didn't surprise me that fighting was centered around the area Small had settled in. Not that I expected him to be at the heart of a firefight, but this neighborhood would certainly be a draw for those seeking some sort of violent balance in their lives. The offices hereabouts were upscale and rather tall by local standards, with glass and sculpted stone-mold faces. By the time I rounded the corner onto a smoky scene of urban combat, the shooting was already done. Half a block away, several armed rebels stood in the street. They wore filter masks, carried military-grade weapons, and had on civilian cold gear with black-knit caps. I saw several small automatic rifles, but one tall guy carried something larger. Clearly a weapon, it had an integrated backpack with a conical gun-shaped attachment on the end of a hose or cable which he held with two hands. From this distance, it might have been a flamethrower, but there wasn't anything burning in the immediate area. Loyalist soldiers were lying in the road, and one was draped over the side of a long inflatable barrier. This man's corpse bounced slightly whenever any of the rebels bumped into the anti-ballistic wall before it finally slipped off out of sight. The barrier had been set up in front of a particular building dead center in the middle of the block. It had once borne a modern facade, but it was all battle-scarred now, with windows pitted and shattered. It had also had a set of armored double doors in the front, big ones that might have been stylish and shiny before these guys arrived. One door lay on the ground now, twisted and charred, while the other stood open wide, still on its hinges, but not otherwise better than its twin. In moments, several more armed figures came out through this opening and ran over to one of the rebels who seemed like their leader. The new guys gesticulated disappointedly and shook their heads to all his questions. 
He then must have relayed an order over comm, because the rest of the rebels, who were spread out along the block, ran to converge on the place, eventually forming a single ragged unit. They moved off slowly down the street, their eyes to all the doors and windows that they passed. I had been hiding behind a load of crates and other junk in the street. It was all water-damaged from rain and sleet and full of bullet holes, but the rebel soldiers hadn't spotted me the whole time. I waited until they turned a corner into the gated facilities of a packaging plant before standing up. I was at a loss now. This building was the one my map had been leading me to. I had approached it from the front, but my map showed a large parking lot to its rear on another block over. The rebels had just apparently searched it and found nothing to report. If true, then the elusive Alan Small was still such. Shadowing one side of the block, shuffling from doorway to vending machine, smashed and emptied, to doorway again, I approached the entrance cautiously. Up close, the metal of the doors and supporting frames looked impressive, stylish but functional and very thick. There were telltale distortions around the jagged blast points of the one on the ground, and it was still quite hot to the touch. As I suspected then, that backpack weapon hadn't been a flamethrower. It was a man-portable char pack. Like the introduction of automatic weapons in the early 20th century, and firearms themselves in the centuries before that, weapons-grade charged particle accelerators had changed the way land battles were fought. Essentially, a device that could project a nearly unlimited number of plasma beams at a very high rate of fire, the char pack commanded, or at least gravely threatened, anything that stood in front of its nozzle. It could rip through armor as easily as people, and when coupled with modern targeting and telescopic technologies, could even pick air support and fast-moving missiles right out of the sky. The version that the soldier had been wearing was bulky and old, which was why I hadn't recognized it. Clearly, though, it was still effective. The building was six stories tall and pretty wide. It looked dark and rambling inside, a place easy to get lost or ambushed within. Smoke drifted from a broken window on the top floor, carried up and away in the brisk sun. All the fighting on this street had sent people running for their lives, so it was quiet now. I could have been alone in the whole town. <sighs> I'd arrived too late. Getting drawn into pointless, anti-elitist firefights was certainly not why Alan Small and company had come to Barlow. They must have retreated at the first sign of trouble. I could understand and agree with their thinking, but it put me back to square one. Though pretty sure of my conclusions, I wandered over one block to have a look. The parking lot I'd seen on the security feed was there, but the white van was long gone. I chose a direction at random and walked. I had no other addresses, no ideas, and no leads. They could have gone anywhere and settled down in some new safe house, quietly pursuing a goal I didn't even understand. It had all been speculative to begin with, but this was now an unqualified dead end. I needed time to rethink it all, and that meant a safe house of my own.
In a few minutes, following a larger thoroughfare, I came upon other people again. Civilians, some on foot, some in vehicles of various sizes and styles. I got a few stares because of the panther, so I turned to the wall. A moment's work, snapping it apart, and I was just another face in the crowd. People here were mostly traveling in one direction. Moving along with them, I saw the street was being fed by smaller side roads, with car and foot traffic increasing accordingly. I eventually heard the faint sound of amplified speech coming from beyond a wide space down the block. This was already choked with cars, but the street in front was equally clogged with others trying to get in. Some people were simply parking right there and getting out in the middle of the road. The words grew ever louder as we approached, echoing hollowly through the trench of the streets, foreign and unintelligible. It was a man speaking, and his words galvanized the pressing crowd, eliciting animated exchanges and even what seemed like thankful prayers from old men and women standing off to the side. Most of us, though, moved on briskly, earnestly, and with curious excitement, chasing that voice on the wind. You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on soundcloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care. The perfect match. <laughs>